I'm Deb Eccleston and welcome to Your Shout. Over the next few weeks, RACQ health advocate David Contarini will be interviewing some amazing Queenslanders as part of our special Your Shout health series. Over to you, Dave. My guest this week is renowned sports physiotherapist, author, sculpturer and mountaineer Peter Dornan. Over his 50-year career, Peter has revolutionised the way sports injuries are treated and has written a number of medical books. He's formed the Queensland branch of Sports Medicine Australia and has been the go-to physio for the Wallabies and Kangaroos. Peter is a board member of the Cancer Council of Queensland and formed the Brisbane Prostate Cancer Support Network. He's also a foundation member of the National Rugby League Coaching Panel and has recently been named the 2020 Queensland Senior of the Year. What an amazing title, Peter. Thank you. It was a nice surprise and uh, one I wear with great pride. Did you win? Did I win the Queensland Australian of the Year? That's what I won, yeah. Wow, that's that's amazing. What about when you went for the the coveted Australian Senior of the Year? Were there some pretty there was, good choices? There, there were some remarkable choices, and I have to say I've got no idea how they ever broke us apart. Really? Yes. From myself, I was very happy with the outcome because there was it was a tremendous national coverage. Uh, my message got out there very clearly. Social media particularly picked up on what I was doing. Even better than that, there was an opportunity to talk to their professionals about how you can use what I've done to go to the next level. So I've done that. I've come home with a complete new way of structuring the next two or three years of my life. Fantastic. Let's begin. Peter, you say that there are three things which men lean on to give us a sense of identity. What are these three things and are they good or bad for us? We have to look historically as to what these three things are and I'll just briefly tell you this started probably in the earlier Homo sapiens, even before that. That's 200,000 years ago, or even a million years before then, when males and females were both did different things for the tribe to survive. Males had more testosterone, uh, and so they became more risk-takers and went out to the fields to hunt and to provide. At the same time, because they were bigger and stronger, they also had to provide, had to had to protect. And the third, the three P's: that's protect, provide, and procreate. And uh, and the third one was, of course, procreate. And the reason why this happened, uh, why we had to be in charge, perceived to be in charge, was that one of the the side effects of Homo erectus standing up two million years ago was that our pelvises narrowed and we couldn't take the baby through to full term. So the baby came early, so we're the only mammal almost where the mothers have to look after the baby for some years. So that means they need support from the male. So in this way, men protected, we provided, and we procreated. Uh, and we did that from that day on. That's been passed down through every generation, every country that we go to, everywhere where we did the grand diaspora. Uh, to the plains of, 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 the, of America, to the fishing pools of, of, of the Pacific, anywhere where males were, that's the role that we perceived we were here for. And it stayed that way until just recently when suddenly we suddenly realise now that we don't need that machoism, we don't need to have that male aggression anymore. We are really just human beings and, uh, and so now we're trying to, to change that. In fact, society's trying to change it because one of the terrible offshoots of this perception of us males being in charge is that women have, 
have, have, have achieved an inferior status. And that's where it's led to males owning everything, property, chattels, it's all our males. And that is slowly, slowly changing now. The last two generations have been big changes. What with, with, uh, with the pill, with women not putting up with it anymore, with the Me Too movement, bit by bit men are suddenly realising that they don't need to be this aggressive. It's happened quite recently that it's not even right to say we're males or females. There's on a spectrum now between male and female, there are about 109 different loci now for us to say what we are or aren't. We're not just a male or a female, we're anywhere in between. And so very soon we're going to have new agenda and we can't do anything about that. That's the way it's going to be. <laughs> yeah. And we have to accept every human being who walks in this door as new agenda until we know otherwise or until they want to tell us what they are. The three Ps can also be called the three Ws in answer to your question. That's women, warrior and work. And we did the whole thing very well, but to the fact that we're putting females down. Mm. Peter, you've been a physiotherapist now for 50 years. What were the series of events which came about for you to choose this profession? I was actually born and raised outside of Kingaroy. I was born in Kingaroy, but raised on a peanut farm, on a peanut dairy farm. And, uh, and that was going to be my life. I'm a fifth-generation farmer. But Dad sent me away to boarding school. Dad and Mum sent me away to boarding school uh, at Brisbane Boys College, which was a tremendous big change for me because I came from a one-teacher school. We were about 25 kids there, which meant I never saw a football, I never saw a cricket bat, and was completely disadvantaged going into, into Brisbane Boys College into a school like this. So it took me a long time to pick up on those skills. The point is that I did manage my three years and learnt a great deal Seeds were sown there about life, about leadership, about uh, about physics and chemistry, which I didn't know I was going to use. But with about two months to go before I finished my grade 12 or my senior year, Dad sold the farm, which completely threw me because I had no other plan but to become a farmer. Dad came down to Brisbane and so I lived there for a while. And I mean, I lived with him until I got married, but uh, I did odd jobs, various things to try and mark time to find out what was else was there for in store for me. I eventually got a job at a hospital, at the Greensopes Hospital, as an admissions, as an admissions clerk and de- befriended the doctors there. And, uh, and one doctor said, why don't you come and watch me do a gastrectomy? So I talked to my senior, I spoke to my boss, and he said, yeah, go ahead. So I watched him do a five-hour gastrectomy and was completely inspired and changed my life at that moment. Wow. And so I said, I'm going to do medicine. Unfortunately, medicine was six years, and I didn't have mathematics physiotherapy was also in the hospital and I thought that's a really good choice. So I went into physiotherapy and, uh, and after three years uh, came out as a physiotherapist. We're going to come back to uh, some of the things that you could give us as hints uh, as to how, to how to better move and how to, to better look after ourselves a little bit later on. Let's go back to this wonderful scaffold that you have around the four stages of a man's life. What are they and what can men learn from these stages? One of the things that have always, how men have identified themselves is through, um, through rites of passage. Everyone has a rites of passage and no matter whether, whether uh, it, it's recognised by a tribe or by your society, men do go through it because as they grow older they, they, they change. The testosterone changes, the hormones changes, and the situation changes. The first stage is from naught to 20, and that's simply called the, the athletic or testosterone stage. Uh, our testosterone, when we get to 12 or 13, we have all these great changes to our body. We're 
growing hair, we're, we're, we're getting our voice deepens, we're getting this great urge of sexuality, we don't quite know what that means, but very clearly something's happening to us. And then our testosterone comes on properly and then we start to become stronger and bigger and faster and we compete with every other male in the gene pool to try and be the biggest and the best for seeing how much hot chili we can eat, how much beer we can drink and how fast we can punch. This way we're trying to set ourselves up as being the top. By about 20, most tribes, males have found their partners. And so the next level is the warrior stage between 20 and 40. At this stage, we are now protecting our family, we're providing for them, we're going out in the fields, we go to work eight, ten hours a day, or we go, go out and we hunt in the jungle, or we hunt anywhere. Uh, the idea is to go out and protect and provide for our family. And we will do this to the death. We have our castle, and this is a stage where we set ourselves up as being machoism and not to let anyone else anywhere near our tribe, our family. And we will die. We will defend them to the death to, to, to do this. And this is why we become invincible. We don't want to let anyone think there's anything wrong with us. We don't want to appear to be vulnerable. Mm. We don't want anyone to think something could be weakness, so then they will come and attack our castle. And we've kept this feeling of invincibility right through. That's the second stage, and that'll go through until about 40. By then, our kids have generally left home. They're generally doing their own thing. By 40, though, we've passed our years by date. Everything that we were designed to do is starting to break down. So between 40 and 60, we become an elder. We can't compete physically with the younger group, uh, men, but by this time we've got we have rat cunning and we're starting to become smart and wise and we can beat them with that easily. But, but we, we, we go on the tribal council and help to to see the tribe safe. At the next level, and we'll do this for the next sort of 20 years, by this stage things are slowly winding down physically. By 60 years old, they're generally really going out, we're very, we're generally not being able to we're generally losing a lot of our physical and sometimes our mental capabilities, but then we become a sage. So we become a bit more than wise. We've been around a long time. We've seen a lot of cycles happen in life. And we've, we've, a sage is often compared with a religious or a, or, or a higher uh, or a higher being. And I don't really think that's what most of, this, of the men in this age group think they are but their vision can be seen to be, how did you work that out? It's called visionary, because you've seen it happen before, you know what's going to happen in the future. One of the things that that typifies or characterises human beings amongst any other of the other other, uh, lower vertebrates is that we have the ability to look at the past and look at the future. No other animal can to a great deal, so we can see what's in front of us. That imagination state is just why we survive, isn't it? As humans, we can project things into the future and, and uh, I guess, see a life that's that's better. Yes, where we can. We're not, we don't go looking for it like the, the lower animals do. They, they look for it because they have to. If there's something happening, they'll look for it. But we look at it because we can mm. and we, we can see a tendency. So, Peter, let's go back in time. You're in your warrior years, in your 30s. Your career is advancing. You're heavily involved in rugby league and rugby union. You're travelling extensively with the Wallabies and the Kangaroos and the Queensland Reds. But at 30 years of age, all is not well. What happened next? It wasn't exactly 30. It took about 10 years. I started a practice when I was about 24. Uh, in fact, I got married and started practice on the same day. Um, <laughs> so, so, Hate to see how that night ended up, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at the time, 
because I was invincible, I could handle anything. Right. And it wasn't a problem. And that's, and that's why I thought I could do everything. So my first week in practice, uh, and because I was still playing rugby, I went down to the football fields that weekend and the secretary of the Queensland Rugby Union approached me and said, look, we're thinking of, of having a physio look after the Queensland team instead of ambulance men. They just went into some football. Right whereas they wanted to try me, so I, would, I was going to become the first physio who did this. So I did it next weekend at the Queensland-New South Wales game and, uh, and introduced a lot of ideas, such as running onto the field and being alert to everything that happened so you could, you could see the injury occur, you could know what to do with it after it happened because you, 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 you were there. So I actually wrote the first book on sporting injuries. So that, I, that, I became the first physio for the Reds. They weren't called the Reds then, they were just Queensland Rugby uh, and the Wallabies. And because I was in a practice with a rugby league practice, I was also the first physio for the Queensland Rugby League and the Kangaroos. And because I was only physio in, the, in, in Queensland doing anything with sport, I also became the first physio for the soccer, for the basketball, for the netball, for the lifesavers, for whatever You're team was around. You were a busy man, Peter. Well, I, it was there, the need was there, and I was, uh, I was hungry. It was great. So I'd take my kids out on the weekend with my wife, and we'd watch three football games on the weekend, out to football at night-time training. By 10 years, I was starting to become dated, run down, and I thought I was seeing every football game in, 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 in slow motion. <laughs> in slow motion, and as if I'd seen it before. In reverse, yeah. yeah. And, and so then I decided I needed to take a, I needed to find out what was happening. I needed a break. So I took Dimity and my wife and kids around Europe in a van for six weeks and then went to every major, well, you tour it, but you also go to all major uh, art houses at the time and you, you do what you do as a traveller. When I came back, I decided I needed to change my life tremendously. So I did a lot of research and found out what made for, for a better lifestyle. It also stimulated the artist inside me and creativity. So I divided my life up. I came back and found I, I divided my life up as if it was going to be a business plan and not just let it go higgledy-piggledy. So I divided it up into six parts. Had, yep. I had, had a cake with, with, yep. with the six pies in it. I had a pie with six parts in it. In, in fact, what I had to do was to define, I had to get a new definition of success. At this stage, success meant uh, I had to be the best of everything. I was still part of this top of the gene pool thing. I wanted to be the best in everything. But then I realised that wasn't really a good, clever idea mm. because everyone is so different and we all have different skills. I, I designed a business plan and the first the key principle was to find balance. To do this meant searching for a low-stress lifestyle. It meant searching for the proper proportion of work and play, of challenge and ease, of stress and relaxation, of striving and taking it easy, of companionship and solitude, of exercise and rest, of discipline and self-indulgence. The goal was not to eliminate stress. Without stress, there is no challenge. The art was to get it to the level where it could assist me to enjoy a stimulating lifestyle. So I had to then change my idea of what of what success was. So Peter, many people would, would probably take that assessment. They'd realise that they're working too hard. They might, as you did, go overseas, have a bit of a break, reassess their, their life that if we continue down this path, then it's not going to end well. But people then just come back from that short sojourn I, I guess and just go straight back into what they're doing yeah. thinking that oh, I've just had a bit of a break and that's going to refresh me but not only did you have a break you just had a complete 
reassessment. And I'm really interested to find out why did you have to research that? Like, couldn't you, or wasn't there just sort of something within you saying, no, I'm interested in all of these different types of things. These are the things I'm going to now pursue. Why do you think you had to research that? Because I didn't know I was interested in those sort of things. I was interested in physio and my family. That was my two things. There was nothing else to my life. But then I realized that it was going to die. I was going to die if I kept that going. Mm. So then I had to do research to find out there's got to be a better way. And that took discipline to do that because I needed to change things. And when I did that, it, it implies that you cannot be effective in your business life and unhealthy or ineffective in your private life or any other area of life that you may define. That is, the successful executive who works up to 70 hours a week and rises high in the organisation on a handsome salary while his marriage and family life falls apart, his health declines, he smokes and drinks too heavily and lives only for his work can be said to be a failure. He has a success at one narrow pursuit but a failure at life as a general matter. So I wanted to change that and that's when I got... When, when I worked out a business plan and I was going to stick to it. If, you, if you're going to business, you stick to a business plan, but Absolutely. you've got to make one in the first place. Yeah. So I did my research and, and very briefly what I did, I found six dimensions that would suit me. So share with us what those six are. The first was professional. That means my livelihood. And that would, of course, be my central activity. That's where I get derived satisfaction from. The next is financial. That seems simple, but the, the truth is if you don't look after your money, It'll go very quickly, and it's all very well to say if you work hard enough, you'll get enough money, true to a point, but you've still got to do the smartest things with it, so I worked out the best way to do my money. The next was social. This is relationships and activities that I share with others, family, friends, members of the opposite sex, and so I decided to join up organisations or clubs to extend my interests and also to work with work colleagues socially, go to parties, theatre, picnics, which I never did. Cultural. These are the things I did for rewarding educational purposes. They are self-broadening activities, such as travelling, reading, studying a foreign language, taking courses for the sake of learning, attending lectures, watching TV programmes, going to plays, worthwhile movie concerts. It's a way in which I absorbed new ideas and expanded my horizons in all different directions. The first thing I did was go to Time Life Library, and I bought every two months a book on the world and then on art and then on war and then on the history of Australia. That took about about 10 years. Every two months I had something new coming in. And then creative. And that means this really means searching for the artist inside. These are activities which allowed me to express my personality and which encourage growth. These include hobbies, crafts or artwork, painting or sculpture, and in my case it was sculpture, playing a musical instrument. I did that as well gardening and growing flowers. You can do anything you want to to get the artist out. Everyone's, everyone's got an artist inside. People think they haven't, but they don't spend enough time searching for it and letting it go, 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 go out. You had a, a, a sculpture coach, for want of a better word, for 10 yeah. years, is that right? And that's what happened when I came back. The first thing I wanted to do was let this artist out. I could always draw back in the old days, uh, back at school, but because I was colourblind, it meant I was never going to get a life out of it. It just wasn't going to be commercially good for anybody. Mm. It was interesting and probably <coughs> probably amusing, but it didn't. It wasn't going to sell, make a life. So I put it on hold. The first week back from my trip overseas, I was doing some research in anatomy department at the University of Queensland, and there was a couple of young chaps down the end in jeans and t-shirt, which they didn't wear in those days. I said, "Who are those guys?" And uh, anyway, uh, they, I was introduced as being sculpture students. 
And uh, so I went to introduce myself to them straight away, and it turns out they were students of George Vereen. Now, George is a Russian master sculptor. He was trained in Moscow before the war, and uh, and he was taken prisoner, escaped about three or four times, and came out here as a refugee in 1950 and set up the first classical art studio. And so I went to meet him straight away the next day. I sat in with him every Thursday morning for the next 10 years and learned the discipline of sculpture, certainly the art, but the discipline of getting it going round and round the subject until it looks like what it's supposed to look like. I learned about history. I learned about Russian history. I learned about war. George was, was one of my wisest friends. Wow. And you can always learn from older men, always, if you let yourself do it. Mm, absolutely. George was still sculpting at 92. He did a, a, a marvellous sculpture of of St. Peter the Great of Russia at 90 and he was still actually teaching at 95 and he died at 97 a great loss to me so so, so that was one of the big things about about my art life anyway and the last one was personal and success in this area means being in sound health both mental and physical it means exploiting the wellness triad of rest exercise diet I call it the big red and we're going to get into that in one second what I'd love to ask you now Peter is you've got these six categories uh, that you have I guess carved out for you and most of us would say oh yeah I've probably got three or four or or, or maybe even six, but I guess the difference with, with you is that you actually made and carved out equal amounts of time. That's the next level, isn't it? I didn't do it straight away. You did it over weeks and months, even years, before you worked out what you needed to do that was important for this life change. So I pigeonholed my day. So I would do a certain amount of time for sculpture, for reading, for, for history. I'd play the saxophone, or for whatever creative outlet I wanted to do, for, for my study, uh, I'd, I'd spend up to 10 hours a week on creative outlets and social outlets as well. Luckily, I had a wife who was, who was very aware to what I was doing, and we both did this together. And so she made sure I got social outlets as well. But the point is, yes, you have to be disciplined about it. Uh, it'd be very easy to say, well, I've got patients I can see now. I'll see them instead. So my patients had to go on hold as part of the jolly pigeonhole, and they still do. I guess what we're saying here from a men's health perspective and certainly the patients that you see, we start getting problems from a health perspective when some of those things become completely out of balance, when it's all about work, mm. yeah, or on the other side, when it's just all about play, mm. I guess, as well. Yeah. Are you in the belief that, that the more balanced our life is, the better it's going to be? One side balances out the other. And in every way, I remember I read, read out to you at the beginning the way that we could balance out rest with exercise, indulgence with with uh, with intensity. They just play against each other. It's a yin and yang, I suppose, which I suppose other cultures have found that, that works. If you do one thing only, you're going to get sick. You are, and you're going to get imbalanced. If you do have enough rest, then you can do enough exercise, then you can do enough work. If you keep on balancing it out... I actually close my doors every lunch hour, I have done for 40 years, and I meditate. I work very hard in the morning, I've got a very busy job, a physical job and a mental job, but with patience. And then I get to, to lunchtime and I'm often pretty exhausted, so I, I close my door and I have 20 minutes of proper meditation and I can get up, and 20 minutes of meditation is worth three hours of good sleep. And I'm completely sparking, ready to go for the afternoon. 
that's that's part of the RED I was telling about. That let's there. let's get into that, Peter. So you see a lot of people in the forty to sixty year category, and you've devised a bit of a plan called the Big Red as a form of treatment. So what does RED mean? The R simply means rest. We have to put rest into our life, and that would mean straight away eight hours sleep a night, no matter what. Eight hours sleep. It means taking off holidays two, three, or four weeks a year. It means every weekend you've got to take off at least two, at least a couple of days every weekend if you can, and, and, and if you can possibly have a break through the week, depending on how you work and what your work situation is. And these days with with work situations that are generally pretty good, they'll let you do four hours or four days a week or something, and you might be you might be able to to negotiate. But the point is, if you don't have rest, it will mount up, it will build up. But Peter, what about those you know, people who are coming into your practice saying, oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead, or I only need four mm. hours a night, or I only mm. need six hours a night, or whatever. Yeah. You would see that all the time in terms yeah. of potentially their recovery or, or, mm. or their mental stays. Mm. We can only really do that for so long, can't we, and, until something starts to break down. In my life, it was 10 years. <laughs> in fact, most professionals, most people, when they start life, they're invincible, as I said. That's males as well as females. We're all dying to get hold of life and grab it and take what we can. You can do that for so long. Eventually, you will run out of testosterone, you'll run out of adrenaline, you'll run out of ambition, and you'll slowly wear, it, you wear yourself out. And the average age is 10 years, and that's what I... The average age for a physio is 10 years because they burn out by the time they're 27 to 30, and they wear their thumbs out for a start, but they wear out, wear out their interest. Uh, you know, they, they generally will step aside and they'll maybe go into administration or change their whole life somewhere. Most people will get a shock, but unless they've had some sort of, of health thing first. And some people can get by 20 years if they mm. can, and some particular personalities can get by a lot longer. Mm. I'm talking about the average Joe. There are some some characters who are so strong in their mm. self-belief, and, uh, and they'll push themselves through anything. But there's generally a price. So that's rest. Mm. What's the E stand for? The E stands for exercise. The Sports Medicine Australia and AMA recommend you have at least 30 minutes a day, six days a week, to be able to have a good balanced life. Reduce the risk of cardiovascular problems, cancers, and a whole range of health problems that exercise can fix up or can help or to prevent, uh, including including helping you to sleep better, to, to think better, to make love better, to do everything better. It's, it's a regulator. As you grow older, you actually need more. So once you're getting to your 40s and 50s and 60s, you need up to 45 minutes a day. Some authorities say an hour a day, six days a week. And what's, what's important though, is once you're getting to 35, 40, you're actually losing strength as well. So at 35, you lose a percent a year in strength. So between 35 and 65, you've lost 30% of your strength. That's not so much even from ageing, it's mainly from inactivity. But you can make that up by doing resistance work. So the biggest thing I'm going to tell you today is to start weight training when you get to 35 or 40, but even before if you like to get into the habit of it. But you should be able to do weights three times a week until you're about 60s, then you can cut it down to twice a week because you need more chance to recover. So the biggest thing I'll ever say to you is to exercise 45 minutes a day, try and put in two or three sessions a week of weights. Peter, if someone is listening to this, and again, they're in that corporate world of busyness, how can we get at least what you're prescribing in terms of exercise. So th- does it mean that we can just simply go for a walk in our in our lunchtime or a walk after work or before work, whatever it might be? 
Um, I mean, is is that enough when it comes to intensity? Because we hear a lot about, oh no, the exercise these days has to be intense, and we've got mm. to sweat it hard, and we've mm. got to, you know, punch the punching bag, and and get our heart rate up, and all those sorts of things. And then there's also this component about strength and and making sure that we uh, we have enough strength as we get older. So are things as simple as walking? I mean, is is that does that cut the mustard? answer to the question, there are many ways to get fit and there's many ways to keep healthy by exercise. Many ways. H-I-I-T is actually an old form of what's called fat lek. And that's an old Swedish uh, exercise program which which means fast, slow, fast, slow. But uh, you can still get fit enough for everyday activity by going for a half an hour walk or a 45 minutes walk. But that works only two things. It works your calves and it works your heart. But you've got to do it briskly Mm -hmm. to get a good result. It's not working any other part of your body. So there's nothing wrong with it. And it would be unreasonable if you haven't done anything for a while to do anything else except start off with five minutes today and maybe do that for a week and then do 10 minutes and then quarter an hour and build up. But at the same token, you should be introducing swimming, weight training, yoga, ballet, Pilates. There's a whole range of activities that you can do to make the rest of the body come in. Our body was designed for exercise. Let's talk about the D. What does the D stand for? That's diet. And there's been an awful lot written about diet recently with many different experts. All diets are designed to do two things, and that is is to to put less in, and and the other other side of it is to exercise more out. That's really what it boils down to. And there are many ways of doing this, many of them gimmicks and many of them very unhealthy gimmicks. And there are many styles of diets to have, but if you want the best, and this is the one that I've been using for about 30 years, is is a variation of the Mediterranean-style diet. Everyone's going to have gluten-free, and they've got all sorts of different uh, tolerances they're going to have to look at themselves. But the Mediterranean diet is one of the best diets. It's one. Of, it, it's a variation of what they use in what's called the Blue Zones. And the Blue Zones, as you may or may not know, are the, are the areas in the world uh, on a map where it's blue, where these people live the longest. They have a diet and a lifestyle, and it's not just a diet, it's a lifestyle that gives them longevity. But, but the components of the of the Mediterranean style is the one that seems to be the best. And that's got things like whole grains, legumes, uh, olive, oil. olive oils, nuts, berries, and... Meats. You know, generally more fish and chicken mm-hmm. than meat, mm-hmm. but you can have them. And, uh, and a glass or two of red wine. It's a well-balanced diet. Everyone's going to have to find their own diet, but do not be obsessed by what you see in the paper by so many different variations. It's just common sense. Google Mediterranean diet and you'll get your answer straight away. There's also a lot of, uh, I guess, questions about saturated fat and saturated fat building up in our body, causing heart disease with cholesterol, those sorts of things. The Mediterranean diet is often described or at least prescribed if you have heart disease to potentially control that or or, or reverse Mm. that. What camp do you sit in when it comes to that saturated fat argument? I think one of the... um, the worst mistakes our species made was 40 years ago when the American Heart Society found that we were eating too much fat. So there was a tremendous kickback, let's not eat any fat. And of course, we cut back on fat, but we needed something for the taste, so we put sugar in. And so then we became addicted to sugar, which is worse than fat. And in fact, what we found now is that most Australians have as many as 40 teaspoons of sugar a day. All we need, the RDA, the recommended daily um, amount, is six. You just need to cut back on sugar and you need to get back onto fat. I have milk and I know I have butter. 
I'm not obsessed with fat at all. I'm not obsessed with I'm not obsessed with diet at all. And if you could see Peter sitting opposite me here, he is the fittest 77 uh, year old I've ever seen in my life. So you're a walking testament to that. Peter, that's a fantastic summary of the RED rest, exercise and diet. Let's move on. You're now 52 years of age. You go in for a routine medical. What did the doctors find and what did you do next? My GP suggested I have a PSA test, which I had never heard of before. And uh, you know, I said, what's that? He said, well, it's for, your, it's for your prostate. I said, what's my prostate? And I'm a health professional. And uh, I never, never heard of my prostate. Well, I did my anatomy. I saw it perhaps as I went on the way through cutting up a body, but I had no idea what it did, where it really sat, and what it meant to me as a male. So I had a blood test and found out I did have cancer down there. Once you have cancer in your system, do you just live with it or do you get rid of it? So I decided that, that I, my, my father died of bowel cancer and a terrible death, very young. So I said, get rid of it straight away. So I had surgery and that unfortunately left me with quite devastating side effects because in those days we didn't know much about how to manage and that was incontinence, impotence and depression because I just, it was part of my life that was completely lost and that's that's the depression part. As soon as you lose things, it's part of, and I will just talk about this quickly, that, 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 that when you lose things, you become, you go through a stage of grieving where you go through uh, through, through denial. You said, this hasn't happened to me, and males are very good at denial. Then you go anger, so yes, I have lost something, uh, such as a crook knee, and then you go into into depression because it's reactive depression. I'm never going to be any good at football again. I'm never going to run again. My life's had it. And then eventually, once you address it then, you then will come back to what's called acceptance, so there's four stages. But with losing those three things, we were losing incontinence and impotence and no one knew anything about it, I very quickly went straight down to depression. So then I had to find out a way to fix it. My doctors didn't know. So as it turns out, I am a physio, and I knew that female physios treated females with incontinence after the childbirth or whatever. So I approached them and they taught me how to do basic pelvic floor exercises that helped tremendously but not to the stage, it got me back where I was working again and, and, and exercising again, but not to the stage where it had gone away, because every time it would leak, it would remind me of the terrible stages that I'd been through, and so I'd get post-trauma stress syndrome from that. Eventually, after three or four years, I got a fellowship to the United States where I spent time going to the major hospitals dealing with incontinence, impotence and prostate cancer, and I came back and I'd, I found out from, as it turns out, some recent research done by the University of Queensland and put this in together, that the pelvic floor muscles and the abdominals are part of a core system together. So when you work your abdominals, you work your pelvic floors. So I started a very strong program of abdominal work, pelvic floor work, punching, swimming, boxing, running, everything, back to the gym, and I got myself super fit, and I dried myself up, which meant the depression went, and my life was pretty normal. The erectile dysfunction took a long time to go, but once we worked out what to do with that, and there are many ways that a male, a male health doctor can help that these days, it's not that hard. Mm. But I didn't know. There was nothing in place then. So, so that then, after about a year, I was getting myself very distressed. And I thought, what am I going to do? So I said, there's got to be other men out there who's been through this. And not one of them put their hand up. I didn't find another man. So I put an ad in the paper. I said, is anyone else going through what I'm going through? So we had a meeting at Wavell RSL Club and 70 men and their partners turned up. They were all out there, didn't know what to do. Wow. We're not going to talk to each other. So we met, went back to my rooms and started to meet there once a month. After a while, the Cancer Council Queensland realised that nothing was being done for men with prostate cancer. 
because they didn't put her hand up. So they heard what I was doing, invited us back to their rooms. And so we sat in there every year uh, for the next 20 years and we would get professionals to talk about all the side effects, all the treatments. So after a while we educated ourselves. We had three plans. One was to educate ourselves so we knew how to get out of it. Two was to make the public more aware so we weren't like I was and say, what the heck's a prostate? And three was to do research. There was not one research article for a, prostate, a program in the whole of Australia at that stage. That's changed tremendously over 20 years. Every man knows what the prostate is, what it does and how to look after it to a certain extent. And there is something like millions being spent now on research. So we virtually did what we set out to do. It really led, after about a year, to three or four other fledgling groups in Australia. We set up the Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia, which is now the peak consumer body for prostate cancer. So it's been a tremendous ride for us all, and we're very proud of what's, what's happened. You describe prostate cancer now, I guess, as an inconvenience. What do you think was the gift that that disease brought you, Peter? It's interesting you should say a gift because it was wrapped up in a pretty rotten package. But underneath there, there is a gift because to to be able to get through this, eventually you've got to search your way through. So that gives you a certain amount of of strength of character to, to do it. But once you realise that you're going to live and you've, and you've treated yourself well, there's this great elation for living. You're then going to balance that out against the terrible thought that you're going to die. And I was given three years to live. And so then I said, I'm going to challenge myself. I'm going to climb a mountain. At 60 years old, I started training to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. I did do that, which was a tremendous excitement for me. I was very excited. But Tell us about you're off the plane, you're celebrating your sageness, you're celebrating the end of, I guess, the, this cancer that's that's been with you for, for so many years. You get off that plane in Africa, you're about mm. to climb this mountain. What are you thinking? To get to Kilimanjaro, you actually fly in from South Africa and you fly over the mountain and it's just this great big massive massive over the plains and the, and the plane actually dips its wings so you can look into the crater uh, and we're flying at 30,000 feet Kilimanjaro is 20,000 feet and I said I'm going to be sitting there at the top I can put my finger down and touch it I'm going to be there at the top of it later on so Did you have any doubts that you weren't going to get to the top? Oh completely because I'm, I'm not a mountaineer at that stage I mean I'd walked a Kokoda trail I'd done other things but a mountaineer is a different thing again at 60 years old also no one else did that much at that age group at that stage so I teared up with two other men part of the same group and one happened to be a young man from Brisbane Boys College he was 23 and he was there with his father he thought he was an athlete and he wanted to to have a life surfing around the world mm. and he did very well but he found out he couldn't live that way so he decided to challenge himself with his dad so they went up this mountain with me together and we went like being a young man he raced to the top and got himself completely exhausted but when we got there we did a Brisbane Boys College war cry at the top of the mountain would you believe you still remember the words yeah oh too right I do <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure you remember your school war cry I do actually <laughs> yeah but the other thing about it was that it was actually St Valentine's Day and I actually sang a love song to my wife <laughs> she was my first support system and it just met but, but my voice didn't come out. It was just there was too there was no oxygen, and I was too emotional. But that's what my thoughts were. Here I am on St Valentine's Day, climbing a mountain alive, and got a great life around me. So, so, so anyway, this young chap got exhausted. He ran too far to beat me, as the young bulls do. And he said, "I'm going to lie down in the snow for a while. I'll be okay." I said, "You lie down there, you're going to die." 
So I gave him, I found all my little nuts and bolts that I've been carrying around mm. the place and gave them to him because he'd, he'd eaten his. And between the guide and I, he woke up again then. So the guide and I took him down 100 metres out of the Anoxa area. So he was suffering from oh, yeah, well, That as well, but he was also exhausted. exhausted. He'd just burnt up every glycogen fibre in his body. And so we took him down another 100 metres and he stopped and uh, collapsed again. So we gave him some more food. And we did that about three or four times. And as we get down further, he got a lot better. But by the time he got down the mountain, he'd made an epiphany that he was going to change his life. He went back and did medicine and he is now... Uh, a fabulous uh, emergency doctor at Ipswich. <laughs> and uh, so that was just a nice story from that as well. That's a great story, Peter. That is. Mm. Peter, there's a great mountaineering quote, quote which says, and when you reached the mountain top, then you shall begin to climb. How can you relate to this quote? As you do something hard, no matter whether you're climbing a mountain or a metaphorical mountain, you, you're limited by veneers that, that society's put on you, whether it's your family, your school, your church, your, your community, your government, and they say, you can't do this or you can do this. But as you get going into it yourself, you throw those veneers off, you get rid of those mantles on your back, and so bit by bit, it reveals the real you. And finally, you know exactly who you are after you've been doing this for some time, no matter whether you climb a mountain or whether you don't. But you've got to go into a cave, you've got to spend time by yourself, and you've got to challenge yourself. And until you challenge and you need to do this, you will always remain on autopilot, just the person you've been since you were 15 years old. So I, I first experienced this on the Kokoda Trail. As I said to you, my dad died early, but it was actually he died from his experiences on the Kokoda Trail. And I always wondered why he never told me about it. He just didn't speak about it. Uh, and when he so he uh, fought during the war. He was he was he was he fought during the war on the Kokoda Trail, and uh, at this stage Kokoda wasn't high in our collective memory, uh, and I didn't even know Dad had been there, let alone fought along there, and so I wanted to find out why, and so at 40 years old, uh, I had a mate of mine who's a Vietnam vet. We took 15 top cadets for a survival exercise on the Kokoda Trail. I said, I'm going with you, and I'll help train you. Two days out there, we had a 25-kilogram backpack on, very fit for a 40-year-old, but two days into walking in this humidity and height, I went behind a rock and I cried. I said, I'm not going to be able to do this. This is ridiculous. I'm not trained for this. But then something inside, I connected to this inner strength. Something inside this little inner voice said, against the tide of rising panic, you can do this and you will. And so bit by bit, this was this veneer being pulled back, and it was... Yeah, and of course I had the voices of every one of the ghosts who'd fought up there yeah. on my back saying, you can do this. And so as the, as the hours went on and the days went on, it took us 10 days eventually. But eventually I walked the Kokoda track and in those days there was no, there were only 40 people a year did it. Now 5,000 a year did it because mm. it's quite a pilgrimage to do. We didn't have a guide who knew where we were going. There was no guide, there was no real good map. We had to push back our way through. We got lost many times. So it was, it was the toughest thing I'd ever done in my whole life until then. But when I came back, it had changed me profoundly. I actually found the men who had fought along there and said, why don't you tell me your story? Uh, in fact, it was a bit more than that. I was actually asked to do a sculpture of the Kokoda Trail at 50 years to commemorate it. And when I did that, I presented the sculpture of a chap called Bruce Kingsbury, who was the first Victoria Cross winner on the trail. He died up there, the only VC winner up there. And I found his long-lost mate since I was five years old, and he was beside him, and he was retired to Redcliffe. So he told me what he was wearing, what he did in the battle. 
So I did the sculpture and presented it to the battalion for their reunion. Then all these men started to come up to me and say that I was there that day. And all of a sudden I had all these men with this rich story. They never talked about it. So I went back to my publisher. I'd already written a few books on medicine and said, I've got a story. What can I do? He said, well, write it. So I went ahead for the next five years, interviewing all these men, putting it together, getting editors, and making the story come to life to find out why this men, these men hadn't talked. And, of course, it's a bit like why men don't talk about other things, but it's a bit more than that. With Kokoda Trail, there was tremendous, tremendous viciousness, and they couldn't talk about it to the family or anyone else, and they wanted to forget it and get on with their life. And also other things... Because it was an Australian achievement, and we were, and MacArthur, General MacArthur, wanted to make it look like an, an Allied achievement, our achievements weren't mentioned. Mm. So we just didn't talk about it. And so when I came back, I wrote the book, and it was called The Silent Men. And it was number one in Australia for about three weeks, and it sold very, very well because it let people know about this battle in modern times. There's been many good books written since then. But anyway, that's when I first started to get rid of these mantles to find the inner strength inside, the inner power everybody has. If they, but you won't get it unless you climb a mountain, unless you've got something to, to, uh, to, to challenge yourself for. And once you start to challenge yourself, these veneers will come off, and you'll find crystal clear inside the real Peter Dorner. I was going to ask you, Peter. I don't want to climb a mountain, but I'm no. interested in taking back my veneers. I mean, what can, what can men do? What can people do? To have this, I guess, awareness that there's there's more to their life, there's more to their talents than just simply, as you say, going in autopilot. What are some of the ways that we can we can start to recognise and spend time with ourselves? What can we do? Find a metaphorical mountain, write a book, do something challenging for education, uh, start up a project somewhere, do something that's bigger than you and will last longer than you. That can be anything. There's nothing wrong with being on autopilot all your life. The idea is to try and find out who you are, why you're here, why you're on this universe. Go back to the beginning. Go back to the Big Bang. That's what you've got to do. You've got to go back and start studying. Go back to the Big Bang to find out why you're on Earth, why Earth started. Uh, ask all these big questions of the universe, and then you'll start to find about it. <laughs> what do you love best about your life right now? First, the fact that I've got a life, <laughs> and the fact that I've still got many options that I can challenge myself in, and, and I do, and I will. Once I came back from the um, Australian of the Year in January, they had professionals there who could help you to make clearer view, and this is where professionals come in handy. This is what it means to uh, to climb a mountain. <laughs> and exactly what did you mean by that? So I've come back with very clear pathway now what I'm going to do with what I've just been awarded mm-hmm. and, the, um, and I'm telling you I've started to write another book because it needs to be written I've come back with the idea of continue to work at my work until something else serious falls off, I'm going to continue doing the same thing I'm going to do, I'm going to continue playing with saxophone, continue singing I'm, I'm going to continue doing everything until something falls off <laughs> and get better at it <laughs> Peter that's a wonderful message it's been an absolute delight chatting with you today, Peter, about your life and the messages that you're giving us to really embrace it and age is really no barrier. It's really just about your mindset and what you can put before you to climb, the next thing to climb, so to speak. Where can people find out more about your books uh, and uh, some further reading about what you've done? I guess really, if you just Googled any of them, they come up very quickly. The sports medicine books were with University of Queensland Press. My four military books were at Allen and Unwin 
and uh, and I've done two on pelvic pain in my specialty area right now, and that's what's going to challenge me for the next 10 years is going to be pelvic pain. That's an area I've just really researched and found by accident. I treat people who have pain in their pelvis, and I specialise in this area, uh, and, and that can be done for looking at my website or Australian Academic Press. Peter, thanks again for making the time. It's been a great pleasure. It's been my pleasure too. It's, uh, if I can help anyone... Uh, with, with any insights, we're very happy to talk to them personally or whenever, or email, whatever they want. Thank you for listening to Your Shout, brought to you by Queensland's largest club, RACQ. To hear more, subscribe, or for more great content like this, go to racq.com forward slash living. <laughs>